Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Trip Chalkley, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Of course, you, I think, have lived in the Center of the Universe or been through the Center been of the Universe. Been through the Center of the Universe many times. Had a few drinks at Andy's on occasion. <laughs> had a few drinks at Sports Page. There you go. Uh, none of which are my sponsors. <laughs> but yeah, I've been in Hanover County since 1980 when I came here as the assistant Commonwealth attorney. And then I started my own practice in 1984. Left that uh, across from the courthouse. Went to the air park for many years and... Became Commonwealth Attorney starting in 2008, so I've been here since 1980. Mm, long time. I've been here since uh, 69. Not trying to beat your, it's not a contest or anything, but you grew <laughs> no, up. I'm envious because I graduated from high school in 1969. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> All right, I should mention that we connected, uh, I've known you since I was probably a little kid, right? I don't remember when I first met you, but I know you were around when your dad and I met in law school in the pool hall. Yeah, and uh, wow. what what year did you start law school? Oh, 73, got out in 76. Okay, and that was the same three years my dad was there, right? Dad was a year ahead of me, I think. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, because he did the Army thing for about four years, and then he came into law right. school. But y'all connected over a pool, billiards. Yes, your dad, God bless him. Uh, we never saw him during the week because he was either studying or working because he had a family. Uh, but Friday afternoons was his day to come down into the into the pool room, and we'd shoot pool. I think we played for a mammoth nickel a game. <laughs> That's uh, big money back yeah, then. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a, it was more than I was making practicing or studying law at the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Infinitely more. <laughs> Infinitely more. Yes. Uh, did you have any tough courses in law school? I was, in all candor, Paul, probably the worst law student. T.C. Williams ever turned out. Really? I um, <laughs> had been there like two weeks and came home. I was living at home. Told my father, this is the worst mistake I've ever made. Mm. I hated it. Met, met some wonderful people, but it, nothing but law all day long. Most of which never interests me. Most of the cases were about dead people from 100 years ago. Um, and it just... There was no break. It wasn't like going biology and then going to an English class that you liked and then going to a history class that you liked. It was just different areas of law. Uh, I was pretty convinced I would not be returning for my second year so much so that I never bought books after my first semester. Even though you went back? Went back because my dad would advance my tuition. I would pay him back. Richmond T.C. Williams had a cutoff date. Uh, I hadn't told my dad the news. I was not returning to pursue my law degree. My dad paid it. I thought, well, I don't thinking to myself, well, I really don't want to pay him back if I it's already paid. So I went ahead and so finished it, my second year. And after two years, what the heck, you're two-thirds away through. You right. may as well roll the dice, see what happens. Then. Dad paying ahead led to you being a lawyer for a long time. Yes, it did. <laughs> Is that what your father was, lawyer? or No, my dad was a salesperson for Everett Whitey Company when he first started uh, and sold office furniture. Okay. What, was, what got you interested in law? One, uh, I guess looking back on my grandfather was a city of Richmond ah. sergeant, so I'd get to go down to the city of Richmond courts building and the squad room, which was pretty cool. But I think the other thing was so many shows on TV when I – 
grew up and I'd get to go to my parents who had a TV and we didn't. Uh, it looked pretty easy. I mean, it was Perry Mason and the Bolins and something else and nobody ever had to do any research. Nobody ever had to <laughs> search for witnesses. All the questions seemed to be admissible. People just showed up at the very last five minutes of the show and won your case for you. So I thought, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly how it ended up uh, being for you, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> never had to look for a witness. Never had to chase down a fee. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's back up. You were born in the city of Richmond. Born in the MCV Hospital, yes. Okay. Grew okay. up in uh, Seminary Avenue, really near Lombardy Avenue, mm. uh, and then moved to Brook Road, across from the Children's Hospital, and then my parents bought a house on Pope Avenue where I lived all the way through law school, and while I was first started practicing law, since I was so successful, I still had to live at home, until I finally <laughs> bought a house when I was prosecuting the city of Richmond on New Bern Road in Lakeside, which was probably uh, eight-tenths of a mile away from where I'd grown up most wow. of my life. So you grew up in the city? Grew up in the city, went to college in the city, went to law school in the city. I'm not exactly the adventurous type. <laughs> I mean, if everybody came over to settle this country, was like me, we'd all have beachfront property because I'd have never, I could have cared less was on the other side of the Blue Ridge Mountains. That's great. You, you wouldn't wouldn't have left uh, the Piedmont of Virginia. No, no, I'd, I'd have beachfront property. I'm telling you, I'd been, I'd been loaded. I'd be tanned now. Right. You, you'd have all kinds of property up and down the coast, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. That'd be great. Uh, that's funny. So how did you spend your time when you had free time as a kid? Oh, Lord. City of Richmond was a wonderful place to grow up back there. They had a great parks and recreation program through the elementary school. So we played baseball in the spring, and then they'd have summer parks and rec at the school. So we played baseball in the summer. Um, I was lucky enough when we moved to Pope Avenue, my dad put a basketball court in for me. So that was always somebody coming by to play basketball. If it wasn't, you could go to the playground. You'd find somebody to play basketball. If you went to the baseball diamond over at Ginner Park School, somebody would show up. You know, may only have four people, but you'd play structures. You'd close off half the field. You had to hit to the left side. Uh, or you'd just take batting practice and everybody would run chase the little balls that were fall, all the yarn had gone, was falling out of. Right. Well, it's, it's a great way to grow up, right? Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. It really was. So as a kid, what was your favorite sport to play? Baseball, by far. What, what position did you play? Uh, I pitched and I played uh, first base and played third base. I was a very unsuccessful pitcher, but I looked imposing for the first inning because of my size. <laughs> and after everybody saw my fastball, I was no longer imposing. So the, the bullpen got a lot of work when I was throwing. Well, you must have had a good arm. You're playing third. You just could you not control it. <laughs> I, no, I could catch. I had a, I had a oh, good I enough you. arm. I could catch it. I wasn't afraid of the baseball, unlike a lot of people. I got you. And I was too slow to play short or second. Yeah. Could you hit the ball? Yeah, I was a pretty good hitter. Uh, couldn't hit for power. Didn't really develop a great swing until I started playing softball later on in my life. But, yeah, I was a good contact hitter. All right, nice. Nice, good average. Good average, yes. Lots of singles and doubles. Uh, lots of singles. Doubles would have required me to run another 90 feet, so that didn't happen a whole lot. I was, I was a really fat, chubby, slow kid. <laughs> but you're tall, too. I uh, wasn't that tall. <laughs> My mother would say I was stout. Nice. Uh, so uh, you went to John Marshall High School. Well, John Marshall High School. What was that uh, like back in the day? Great high school. Wonderful teachers. Um, 
my French teacher my first and my freshman and junior year had worked for the OSS in World War II, oh, could wow. speak seven languages, uh, and really know, knew how to teach. He was, he was great. Uh, had wonderful English teachers, great history teachers. Uh, busing came along my last two years, and a whole lot of people that I'd gone to school with since elementary school and all the way through middle school, and probably my first two years um, left Went to Enrico, went to Collegiate. I mean, Collegiate was basically a daycare center. Right. And it became a high school wow. shortly thereafter. Yeah. Your French teacher in the OSS, that was the precursor organization to the CIA, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they, I think the OSS essentially started during World War II. So, yes, it did. So, so your French teacher was there at the beginning. Apparent, yeah, apparently so. And he was doing some tough stuff. You know, never. we just knew he was in it. I don't even remember how. Uh, and I guess he had an affinity and just a knack for language because I remember Christmas time we learned Christmas carols in Japanese Chinese Russian uh, I don't remember what else he's obviously French um, and then ironically he left to go to collegiate as most of the faculty did and the person that came in to teach my senior year of French had been head of the French department at Princeton University had retired to Richmond and wanted something to do huh wow you got lucky with the French teachers. Yeah. I, I, in that day, I knew some French. Of course, back then, French was going to be the international language. It was It was a much bigger deal. I took it in high school yeah, for it was the same going reason. It was huge. I went to Richmond and took whatever proficiency exam or whatever they gave you, and I went right to third year mm. French my freshman year, so I'd finished my language requirement. Right. Early. But, yeah, I got a wonderful, wonderful background in my foreign language. They started teaching. Richmond had... French schools and Spanish elementary schools, and the Spanish teacher or the French teacher would come by one day a week. Mm. I believe it started in second grade, and third grade was one day a week. Then they cut it down, the number of people taking it, uh, and by the time you reached sixth grade, it was probably 15 people taking French at dinner Park from all the classes combined. Oh, wow. So, potential dumb question for either one of you. Mm. French was going to be the, like Spanish is now? They predicted French would be the international language used in corporate discussions and I think uh, going to be used by the UN and things and okay. matters of that. That's that's what they told us. Whether they right. did it just to get me to sign up for French class one more year, I don't know, but that's what they told us. It was going to be big. They, I, they Those people were wrong. Uh, 100%. <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd have gone to Highland Park, I could have spoken fluent Spanish, but that didn't happen. <laughs> I, I enjoyed French. It's a it's a it, it's an interesting language. They don't really like S's unless there's a vowel no, or something. Don't like behind. S's at all. Yeah. Don't like, want to put their adverbs after their verbs instead of before them. Right. Yeah. So the, the big language I I think internationally for the last I don't know forty or fifty years has been English for the yes. the, the world. But if you're already an English speak, speaker, I think it's either Chinese or uh, Spanish are the two big ones. Well, didn't they say English is still the toughest language to learn? If you don't know if one, you know, yeah, yeah which is amazing. A lot of idiosyncrasies in the English language, and we spell stuff weirdly. Yes. Uh, well, and we borrow from almost every other language on earth. We do, except the ones that are popular, like Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> other than uh, take out food, I've never used Chinese, and General Sal must have been a hell of a guy. That's all I have to say. <laughs> He's quite popular even now. <laughs> yes, he is. I, I've actually never looked that up. I should look <laughs> look up why he became such a big deal. <laughs> I have no idea. I actually don't want to look that up. I, I, I want it to be a mystery the rest of my life, I think. Yeah, because he, he probably did a lot of stuff with Rat or Porcupine. 
so high school sounds like you, you had a, a, a good normal experience yes, for, for that normal experience yeah. in high school. And then how did you choose U of R? Oh, um, my dad had gone there for six months after World War II on the GI Bill. Mm. Uh, he hated it almost as much as I hated law school. As a matter of fact, he told me uh, he was not doing well academically, and he went to the dean of students, called him in, and he said, uh, Dean, I'd rather go back and fight the Battle of the Bulge again than come back to school. <laughs> Your dad was at the Battle of the Bulge? <laughs> Dad's Battle of the Bulge. My dad was a, apparently a hero, which we found out after he died. Crotic Air, Silver Star, Bronze Star. Oh, they don't, wow. they don't just give away Silver Stars. No, uh, it's kind of interesting. We never knew any of this, my sister and I, until he got dementia, and then he talked somewhat about it. But he had a boss at Everett Waddy who'd been a colonel in World War II, and I guess he told him the story about the Silver Star, and he never got it. And um, Frank Lalvin went out of his way to get my dad's Silver Star at the end. Yeah. Uh, wow. But we never knew the facts as to how he got it until after he was basically almost, well, he wasn't here to talk to us about it whatsoever. Right. How, did he, how did he earn it? Apparently, from what I have learned, and it's still sketchy, they were, he was a half-track sergeant. He and... Uh, was there with some of the free French and there was going to be a meeting with the free French and whoever the rank of the second armored at some location they were posted as a basically a lookout to protect the position they saw a German troops coming up and my dad who was the strongest man I've ever met and I don't say that because he was my dad he just was took the machine gun off the half track with the French guy and went down to where the Germans were and like 147 Germans surrendered mm. to them. And the meeting, the clandestine meeting was protected. Wow. So and without firing a shot? Fire, well, he probably fired. Nobody Just died. Just warning shots. Fired something over the head, yeah. I guess. That's awesome. Well, and taking the, the machine gun off of that half track, <laughs> it couldn't have been light or easy. I, I, when I say he was the strongest man I ever met, I, I really meant that I I can remember watching him play touch football with what they called the Ravine in North Richmond, which had a field mark off. He could throw football 70 yards. Mm. Wow. Whenever I thought I was a man and knew what the heck to do around the house, um, one of his accounts was the phone company. And y'all are probably too young to remember, but the phone company had the white pages and the yellow pages. I remember. Oh, yeah. In it. They cover it like October. Well, I'd do something like in November or December, and he'd walk over from the get up from the kitchen table and walk over to where the phone book was and rip it in half and say, "If you think you're man enough to run this house, then come on behind the garage." <laughs> and my mother invariably would say, "Chocolate, we never have a phone book after <laughs> after Thanksgiving." He'd go, "Mary, I sold the phone book company. How many phone books do you need? I'll bring them to you tomorrow." Wow. Yeah, uh, ripping those white pages or the yellow pages, <laughs> nobody could do that, except I, except your dad. Uh, the only person I've ever seen do it. I've seen people rip the white pages. I've seen them rip the yellow pages. Uh, I've never tried because I knew I would fail. Yeah, I, I would wouldn't even think about trying. Yeah. It seems impossible. It uh, does. Is, was he just naturally strong, or did yeah, he naturally strong? Yeah. Was he? He grew up in the city too. Grew up like. in uh, Churchill, yeah. then moved over off Grove Avenue. And he never wanted to talk about his World War II experiences. Until oh, he ever tell you was uh, 
we had friends that say your dad was a hero, and that's all they'd say. And you'd go to him and say, Dad, I hate you were a hero. And he'd just say, no, all the heroes didn't come back. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. He's he's right in a way. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, how, how did you – did we talk about how you chose University of Richmond? I think we started to. Yeah, then, uh, then my we, dad had been there, and we got into yeah. what a miserable student he was. Uh, he knew Frank Jones. Richmond had good football program at right, the time. Yeah. He was, it's a pretty big name. Don Ferguson, who played football at Washington and Lee, I was interested in Washington and Lee. I got accepted to Princeton. Really had no, no. I'm convinced I got accepted to Princeton because my first name is R A M O N. They thought I was Hispanic, and I was just going to satisfy <laughs> some minority deal Princeton had going at the time. I really didn't want to go up north. Took my trip to Washington Lee, where I really thought I would go. Uh, 64 didn't go to Lexington at that point in time. You went down 460. You went, right, right. Went through Goshen Pass, which I always thought was a perfect place for an ambush. Mm. Um, <laughs> yep. Drizzling, got behind some farm vehicle, one-lane road, probably should have taken, I don't know, three hours. It took like four and a half. Got there, it was drizzly. First thing you see is VMI. God love the school, but I couldn't have gone there. And I'm going, man, I can't spend four years here. So yeah, it, Well, it was uh, four and a half hours from the beach at least. With no, no traffic, no, <laughs> yeah, no road problems. Uh, and I, I just, you know, my dad's connection to Richmond, most of his friends that had come back from World War II had gone to the University of Richmond on the GI Bill, so his best friend went there and played football. And I grew up going to Richmond football games and basketball games. As, I don't know, from, I guess sometime I was four years old, I remember him mm. playing in alumni football games and going out there. Was this Barty Smith era or beforehand? Barty Smith got was got there right after I started at Richmond. Barty, I think, was a year after me. Okay. I think he started in 70. Cool. And you played there? No, no. I, oh. I went there to thinking I was going to play basketball, but they were misguided, as was I. <laughs> it sounds like me. I'm misguided with that, too. So, uh, University of Richmond back then, it sounds like there were probably a bunch of kids from Virginia. That went there. Guessing without knowing, seventy-five percent from Virginia, probably fifty percent from the Richmond metropolitan area. Even then, had a lot of fraternity brothers from Pennsylvania. Mm, even back Jersey. then, I mean, a lot being, you know, ten, fifteen percent of the fraternity. A lot more than you would expect, though. You would expect, yes. But yeah. it was pretty much a, a local school. Uh, you know, had bad financial problems. Uh, most people don't know it. At one point, Richmond was in really bad straits, and it was thought that it might become the hub of the community college system mm, in wow. Virginia. But the Robbins family stepped up. Oh, that's right. And everything changed. I mean, your dad will tell you, we went to law school, and they almost lost their ABA accreditation because the library was so bad. They had, I think, two sets of the Virginia Code, one set of Southwestern reporters, and me being the loyal... You are a person that I was. I wondered my way not to check out any books in the law library <laughs> so other students wouldn't be denied. <laughs> you were just looking out for everybody. Yeah. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a giver. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I, I think I was telling you the other day, I went to a concert there. They built a, a nice place for music and, I guess, theater. And I couldn't help but notice. Indoor? Yeah, indoor. Over at the Jepson Alumni Center? I, I don't know the campus oh. as well as I, I used to when I was a kid, but uh, – I, I couldn't believe I couldn't find a single Virginia license plate besides the car that I came in. And I'm like, 
why are there no kids from Virginia going to the University of Richmond anymore? And, and I think the logic is, it's even though U of R is not cheap these uh, days. No. Uh, my son it, went. It's, it's, it's definitely it, not. It's still cheaper than, I guess, some options up north. Because yes. they, they, they come from Jersey, yeah. New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania in droves now. And internationally. Wow. I mean, a lot from Southeast Asia, a lot from China, mm. uh, from what I'm told. Yeah. I think 11% of their student bodies from Virginia. I, I would guess it was lower than that. Wow. Wow. And and you know that because you're you're involved a lot. No, I'm not involved at all. The University of Richmond is not the University of Richmond I went to. I have no interest in supporting the University of Richmond. I go to football games so I can tailgate with my fraternity brothers. <laughs> um, I go to basketball games because I like to watch basketball, and I will not go to the Siegel Center. Um, no, I, I get it. Um, but yeah, I mean Richmond is. I went. It was a Southern Baptist conservative college with professors that were conservatives, and it's just far too liberal for me now. I think every uh, school in the country just about is it, that, like that. Yeah, it seems to be that way. It's hard to find a conservative professor, I guess, unless you go to Liberty. Yeah, Liberty or similar schools. Or Reg- yeah. yeah, Regent Law School down the beach, something like that. Yeah, and yeah, you can probably count them on one hand. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I've never really looked into it, but colleges tend to attract people that aren't conservative thinkers. Well, you know, my wife was a teacher. I'm, I've always kept in mind, and no offense to you, mother, that those who can do, those that can't <laughs> teach, and those that can't teach, coach PE. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my mom, I don't think, will be offended by that. No, <laughs> I call her Deirdre. Deirdre is what did I? She's got a wonderful sense of humor, a great lady, good friend. She's a she's a good lady. Yeah, she there's is. There's no doubt. Uh, all right, so U of R, I'm guessing, is not a sponsor of you when you run for election. No, I'm. Uh, I don't get any corporate sponsorship. I'm lucky enough to have some great friends in the county that have stepped up to support me. Uh, I'm incredibly fortunate as of the citizens of the county we have a wonderful sheriff who not only happens to be a wonderful sheriff he happens to be a wonderful friend who runs probably in my opinion the finest law enforcement agency mm. if not in the united states certainly in the state of virginia but he's got to be one of the top 10 in the united states i mean they are so well trained uh so dedicated to doing what's what's right and they the brass those sergeants and on up are just well-trained, and uh, Dave does a great job of letting his people know he cares about them. Uh, Which is unusual for a lot of police forces. Yeah, I mean, it's, I hate to pick on other, other police forces, but if you go back to when everybody was congregating in the city of Richmond, and they're burning police cars, and they're told to stand down, yeah, don't do it, it wouldn't happen in Hanover County. Right, right. Not in a million years. No. Yeah, and I've... Well, way things are going, maybe in a million may, years. May, maybe in half a million, actually, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I grew up here, and I don't remember ever having uh, an issue with the police in Hanover mm-hmm. County. And, in fact, their reputation has always been uh, stellar. Yes, and well-deserved. Yeah, and it takes a lot of effort to, to get there. You know, it's just like raising good children, whatever, it, it doesn't happen by accident. Right. It takes dedication and devotion and an interest in your people to have that happen. All right. Did you play basketball like for fun in high school and college? I played basketball in high school 
my coach probably thought it was for fun, but I was really trying hard. Uh, <laughs> well, you made the team. Yeah, I did. But I mean, I, I was six four, but of course I played five ten. Um, but I, I was by no means a high school star by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Thought I could play at Richmond, who probably had one of the five worst basketball programs at the nation at, at the time. Four, and when you say five worst, like Division One kind of Division, thing. Everybody yeah. there was it was Division One, then you went to Division Two, which was Macon, and I guess there was a Division Three somewhere, but I don't know what it because was. Because Macon was Division Two for a while, right? Yeah. And the, who who was the best player on your high school team? Wow, uh, Beverly Bell probably had the most talent of anybody. Um, Vaughn Breedlove was an excellent basketball player. We played for a, a Bill Chambers who played at Randolph Macon. Yeah. Uh, Bill loved defense more than anything else in the world. I think his dream game would have been if one of our guys scored, everybody scored two points and the other team only scored eight and we won 10 to eight. <laughs> Somebody shut their man down. Uh, he, he loved it when uh, Dean Smith came up with the uh, four quarters. <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> we didn't have anybody could dribble well enough. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right, so you go to U of R. You have – sounds like a good experience. There. Had a great experience at U of R. Loved it. And then uh, because you, you didn't want to stray far from Richmond, you, you go to law school there. Really wanted to go to the University of Kentucky Law School. Why? Because uh, I'd been in Richmond my whole life and – one of my fraternity brothers and dear friends from high school who was a year older than me dated a girl whose dad was a lawyer and worked in the same law firm with Tommy Bell, who was a major NFL referee at the time mm-hmm. was on TV. So I said, well, you know, I've never been anyplace else. I'll apply to Kentucky. And I applied and heard nothing back from Kentucky. And I was pretty sure the only way I was going to get in was because they were short of out-of-state students. Mm. Um, heard nothing, got back after my third day at T.C. Williams, and I had my letter of acceptance from Kentucky, but by that time I'd already mm. sent the tuition into Richmond. Yeah. That worked out wonderfully because I'd have been miserable. As much as I didn't like law school, if I was away from home and not yeah. in law school, I would have never lasted long. So I was fortunate that Kentucky was slow. Yes. Yeah. About lucky. I mean, you've been a lawyer for – 45 years almost. I was going to say more or than a couple 45 minutes. 45 years, I guess, now. Yeah. I mean, well, you're, you're close to it. You're in your 40s, right? Yeah. 40s. <laughs> of uh, Since I've been practicing. If I've only been practicing since the 80s, I'd be 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever been a referee or an umpire or anything like that? Refereed high school football, high school basketball. Well, certified to referee way back when when I first got out of law school yeah. you do a lot of JV games I mean you're going down to watch Essex play Tappahannock or something like mm. that um, Tuesdays and Fridays and once I started practicing law because I was had my own I had my own firm or necessity out of law school you just couldn't take off every Tuesday and every Friday and travel right. anymore. plus I didn't have money for gas because Private practice was not that rewarding to me early on. Yeah, it's really hard because you got to build up your client base. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. It is. Did you get to a place where you felt like you had a strong client base? I thought when I stopped practicing, I, I thought I had a wonderful client base. I had, I'd been around. I was a name, but in Hanover and, and in Caroline, I had people that, God bless them, were devoted to me that, 
they sent their family members to me for speeding tickets and breaking innings, whatever. It just, I had a lot of success. I was very blessed in that regard. What caused you to want to run for the Commonwealth's attorney position? Enjoyed prosecution when I did it in the city, enjoyed it in Hanover County. I was lucky enough to do defense work and still be friends with the police officers who were still there when I was prosecuting. Uh, enjoyed private practice. I'd gone basically into an office sharing arrangement. The county, the relationship between the Commonwealth Attorney's Office and the Sheriff's Department when I ran was fractured, to put it kindly. I was getting older. I was a solo practitioner. I was like one bad illness or one traffic accident away from having no income. Met with several people who thought I should run for Commonwealth Attorney. Did so. Got beat. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that. I try to keep that down. <laughs> I'm among we'll friends. edit that so, out. It's all I didn't know right now. It's like my basketball career. <laughs> uh, let, let them wonder. <laughs> came back four years later and was able to prevail. And then you've been prevailing ever since. Been prevailing ever since, yes. Thank so, goodness. What do you enjoy about being... Uh, in that position. You know, it's funny, the, the, when I first took it on the office in 2008, it was it was awesome to go out and recruit people to come here to fill the vacancies because I'd let some people go because I thought I could bring in higher caliber attorneys. Um, mending the relationship between the Sheriff's Department and my office and other law enforcement agencies, I took a great deal of pride in. but. Once that was done, the biggest enjoyment I get out of it now is hiring somebody, working with them, watching them work with my chief deputy, my deputy, the other attorneys, and watching them become better lawyers. That, that's, I guess that's a product of age, but that's rewarding to see. It's just simplified. It's almost like when you go outside with, with, your, with your son or your child and you're throwing them a wiffle ball and they miss 106 times or 110. And all of a sudden, the next day you go and they're hitting ropes right back at you. I mean, it, that's what it feels yeah. like. You take, they did, it's their effort that did it. It's, it's their hand-eye coordination did it. But you feel, we stuck with it. I got yeah. them out here to do it. They've listened to me. This is pretty cool. You played a, an important part in that development. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really think it's, it's them. I think I was lucky enough to work for Aubrey Davis in the city of Richmond who had a wonderful philosophy of hire the best people you can and then stay out of their way until they need you. But if you see they start to need you, then you better get in there quick and tell them what they need, what they gotta do to correct it. It's hard for a lot of people to let people go yeah. do things on their own, potentially fail, because yeah. there are certain personality types that just don't like failure. Yeah, you, you remember the failures far more than the successes. I mean, I'm, I've done a lot of cases uh, I think I won some, and I don't remember a whole lot of them, but boy, I remember the losses. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll still have nights when I can't go to sleep. And I, God, I don't know why I asked that question. I wish I'd have done that one this differently. Yeah, I remember the losses big time. Yeah. So, like, so you, you've, you've done prosecution and defense, correct? Yes. Is there a different mindset? Oh, totally. To, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the easiest way to explain it, I'll go into more detail if you want me to. I am not... Uh, the most skilled person with my hands, which is why I tell people, say, I'm not going to retire because I don't know what I would do. 
but I'm not going to take up woodworking because I'd like to die with all my fingers. <laughs> uh, summer jobs like everybody had. I've worked demolition. Uh, anybody can break something up. That's defense work. Defense work is, you know, do you where's the weak point? What can I pull out? And everything tumbles down because now there's a reasonable doubt. Prosecution's like building a house. Uh, and that's gotten tougher, uh, not because I got older, just because of science. I mean, and now you've always had to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is tough to start with when you start dissecting the way the judicial system works. Because we bring in 12 people that have nothing in common other than they happen to live in that jurisdiction. We go out of their way through jury selection to make sure they know nothing about the case. We don't even instruct them even instruct them what the law is until all the evidence is over, which I say is like, okay, why don't you order a bookcase from Ikea and try and put it together and then read the instructions. <laughs> right. That's what we ask them to do. Uh, that's always been the case. But now with the way forensics and science has taken over trials, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but with DNA and things of that nature, Everybody watches CSI. Everybody watches and CSI in particular because they have no case at all till the last three minutes when they go back into a house that's been searched twice before and happen to find a hair with a root ball attached, and that proves it all. People got used to finding it. People got used to fingerprints. Uh, people got used to tool mark identification. So we now have to call experts to explain why we didn't get DNA, why we didn't get gunshot residue. So uh -huh. it, it's tougher to prosecute now than it was when I started. Okay. See, I like it. Well, that was the, the high-level answer. And you said you can go into more detail. What, what kind of detail were you thinking when you said that? It's prosecution. I tell my people that I hire that come in, everything you learned in law school, so I had an advantage, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and all that stuff in the code uh, and then the, the Virginia reports, which is reports of cases decided by appellate courts, don't mean a thing to those 12 citizens. Mm. You've got to think like them. And the first thing you have to do is forget that and think about what makes sense using your common sense. Remember, and it works with judges too, not to the same extent because they d do know the law. But before they were judges, they were lawyers. And before they were lawyers, they were people. And if you can address a judge or the binary of a jury as people and point it, this is what makes sense. You can take all of this together. But put A to B and B to C and D. This is what had to happen. You don't use legal terms because most lawyers don't know legal terms. Jurors certainly don't know legal terms. You don't say something is uh, aqua, because somebody on the jury may not understand what aqua is. You say it's blue. Everybody knows what, what blue is. You talk in simple sentences, you ask simple questions, and you get your witness to answer as simply as they can. If they don't answer what you want to, then ask another simple question. That will get them to where you want to go. But that's the way we're conversing right now. We converse, you don't talk at people, you don't talk to people, you make them a part of the conversation. And the other thing I tell them, my people, that is, is 
you've got to become an exhibit. You are the only person on the Commonwealth side that they're going to see from the moment they walk in the courtroom till the moment they leave the courtroom. So you've got to build up some type of bond with them. And the best way to build up a bond with people, because you don't get to go say, okay, we're going to, take, we're going to stop right now and we're going out to the parking lot and have a couple of drinks and I'll tell you about my family, is you talk to them in a manner that they understand you and it makes sense to them. And if you're lucky enough, something will come along that will let you bring up some common experience that most people have had. I mean, nobody talks bad about their mother. So if you can bring your mother in at some point in time, bring up your mother. If most of them will have child, if not, they were certainly a child. So you try to bring up experience with your child, particularly in in an argument or sometimes when you make an objection. That's a good feeling though, a, a little bit for me to know that it just comes down to common sense. It's what it should be, sure, right? I'm a big certainly. proponent of having some common sense outside of all the legalese and all the terms and the, the things that could just confuse you. Obviously, you know way more than I do, but 12 people, it's common sense. Let's try to yes. let them see how this could have happened. You, That's, you want to, you can tell somebody that grass is, the grass is wet. It's better if they walk out there barefooted, step on the grass, than they discovered for themselves the grass is wet. What what you lead people to and they discover for themselves is far more important than telling them this is what you've got to find from this. Yeah. That's cool. So it sounds like you enjoy building houses more than uh, tearing houses down. Uh, It's more work. I can't tell you I'm the most energetic person in the world. I, I love doing criminal defense work. Criminal defense work was a lot of lot of fun and it's easier. Um, it's more fun to protect the community. It's more fun to put those away that should be put away away. But it's also nice, the luxury you have as a Commonwealth attorney is there are certain facts that can never come into evidence. They're just not admissible under the rules of evidence. So the fact that Joe Smith has coached Little League for 10 years, he's sponsored some kids to go to a day camp, none of that would come in at his trial. Might come in at his sentencing, not at his trial. But if Joe is charged with, I don't know, a a grand larceny, and Joe did it because his family had fallen upon the hard times, I get to take that into account and say, no, I'm not going to make this man that's lived 55 years of wonderful life a felon. I'm going to make it something other than that so he's not besmirched by that. that. That's the best thing about being a prosecutor is is getting to know all the facts, admissible or inadmissible, and making the hopefully proper decision. So besides the law and sports, what, what other interests do you have? Uh, eating, obviously. <laughs> Is that is that the whole eating experience? Is that cooking? Oh and, no no! That's once again, you just I'm, like showing up and uh, my, my recliner and I are tight. I don't spill that much food anymore, but I, but I wear old t-shirts just in case. Uh, love to read. Mm. Really enjoy reading, um, which is which is not much of a hobby. And I golf a lot. Still, don't play worth a darn. What, what's your best round ever? 
Ever? Ever. I shot a 70 many, many years ago. Oh, wow. On a par. I shot even par once. Wow. Nice. So you were technically a scratcher for that. A scratcher for for one moment. One brief moment. Yes, I was. And then (laughs) life returned to normal. I guess at my best, I was probably eight handicap. That's pretty good. That is good. Yeah, I was... I was happy with it. The only I had to, it took me years to get over the fact that I'd never be an eight handicapper again. So I should be happy being an eighteen handicapper. And now I measure my success by how many golf balls did I lose that day. I've, I, that's been the golfer I've been my entire life. <laughs> so let's go back real quick though, with, with fear of alienating someone. What's your favorite restaurant in Richmond? I will not eat in the city of Richmond. Okay. What about Hanover? Hanover. Uh, my wife loves Jim Bonko's okay. over on the Kingsville Turnpike. Um, I really, I am a not a particular person at all about my food. I am more into a quantity type of situation <laughs> than a quality situation. All right. All right. Uh, I'm pretty Catholic in my taste. I'll eat just about anything. I, I, I somewhat limit myself because I'm a, a history student that I try not to eat foods from a country that did not win a world war since an army travels on its stomach I believe you should eat that that. so I don't eat sauerkraut I give Italian food credit for the Roman Empire because I will certainly go eat Italian (laughs) food you're gonna have to come up with any loophole well Uh, I am a lawyer Uh, all right, so let's go back to uh, either defense or prosecution. By the way, do you go to court today at all? Uh, I go to court, but not for anything significant. I, I'll do like, I will do perhaps uh, there's something called a red flag law that just passed where if somebody, they are, somebody's convinced that you are a threat to yourself or others, the police can come and issue an emergency order, take your firearms away, mm-hmm. you have a right be heard within 14 days to get them back. I do those. Uh, I'll do, I answer, I look at all the show cause violations, people on suspended sentence that have not complied with what they're supposed to do before I decide whether to issue a show cause or not. And if people go on vacation or their child is in a play or something of that nature, I'll go to court. But as far as uh, trying cases day to day, no, I, I sit in my office. I'm available for officers if they have questions to talk with me, sign instructions for them that I probably see. And, and this is one of the delights. I probably get five to eight citizens a week that come in to see the Commonwealth Attorney to ask me questions. Most of them are about civil matters that I have no idea what they're talking about because uh, they think the Commonwealth Attorney does everything. Right. And, is all knowing boy are they wrong and they're convinced of that when they leg you it's all uh, it's all criminal right all criminal yeah. uh, a few civil things that restoration of licenses restoration of firearms right i do i review all of those and look at the records and decide whether or not we should give them back or have a hearing on it got it without using uh names certainly but can you uh tell us about one of your more memorable cases and it, it can be loss or win for you Oh, well, thank God you expanded to law, so I'll give you more <laughs> options. Uh, I did somewhere between nine and 13 death penalty cases. Oh, uh, wow. Th- they're memorable only because living with the thought that you could be responsible for somebody going to the uh, electric chair or getting uh, the all 
ultimate penalty is, is a miserable way to lead your life. Um, the most memorable case I probably did was Commonwealth versus John Bradley Crawford, which was a cold case. I inherited when I came out here in 2008 that had been mistried twice. It's a little boy was abducted in Henrico, found over on Cold Harbor Road, mm. where he basically died of hyperthermia. Uh, hypothermia. Um, it's the oldest, at the time, at least I was told by the cold case investment, investigate. It's the oldest cold case ever solved without DNA or scientific evidence. Wow. And that was memorable because because we had to deal with a I can't even think of it, a gas chromatograph um, which I'd heard of uh, because it's in my cousin Vinny mm. the guy talks about it and it has nothing it's totally misused in my cousin Vinny uh, the other side had the leading expert in the field about why this should have was not sufficient to identify the petroleum products used to connect the defendant to the crime. So I, who have never been a science fan, had to check out gas chromatography written by him from the VCU library <laughs> and read that, and that was brutal. I don't think I'll ever forget that. I spent more time going to a dictionary to figure out what terms meant than wow. I did reading. Mm. And I'm pleased to say after the trial was over, I've forgotten pretty much all of it. There you go. <laughs> well, I don't know when you would ever use that ever again. Uh, hope, hopefully never. <laughs> it was my dream. My Cousin Vinny, though, great movie. Yes, love it. <laughs> and it's uh, when I used to, to teach uh, certain attorney groups and paralegal groups, I would encourage them to watch his cross-examination of the witness because that is using common sense, sense and yeah. using layman's terms to just you know he says what are these things called leaves yeah everybody knows what a leaf is i mean it's you know it's it's it's, it's a great primer on how to really cross-examine a witness we can come back to my cousin Vinny, the, the guy that you f was found guilty in that child yes uh cold case how old was he when he was eventually uh, the case was 30 years old so i guess he was in his 50s hmm. um he had been incarcerated for other crimes against female juveniles in Hanover. He was getting ready to be released for that. And my predecessor indicted him, tried the case, it came back hung. They were supposed to, they were scheduled to try it before I took office. I'd won the primary, won the election by then. They didn't bring enough jurors, so it got continued. So I took office in January and was supposed and sadly was set for trial in March, um, tried it, another hung jury. Mm. Uh, I didn't think, honestly, based on the evidence we had, we could ever get a conviction. I thought it was just that nebulous as to, as to evidence. Um, I almost decided not to prosecute the case again. I just thought it was a waste of, a, of effort on my part, witnesses' parts, certainly the investigators' part, the jurors' part. And the uh, lead investigator said, you know, if you don't try him again and he gets out, he's going to do this again. So uh, I yeah, said, I don't think there's any question, yeah. So I said, okay, I'll announce we'll do it again. One of the few press releases I've ever done. And weirdly enough, 
I think we've announced it. And we're chasing down bizarre tips from everybody. Got a call from a lady who said, hey, uh, I remember going to a party right after this <coughs> happened. And I heard the defendant talking to somebody else. And what he said was he thought it was just a game and he didn't put up much of a fight. And I said, all right. So I sent the investigator out. And he said, uh, you really got to come talk to her. You really, I really think she's onto something. So I did. Obvious question was, why'd you wait all this time to tell somebody? She, when this, after this party, she moved out of town and heard he went to prison, but he had for the events involving the other two children earlier. This one had never been tried. She had suffered a back injury, so she was working from home and cut on the news and saw he'd been indicted again for this case and go, wow, I thought he was in prison. L let me call up Fripp Joffrey and talk to her. Wow, so she, she ultimately thought he wasn't going to be out of prison anytime soon. She no, thought no. he'd already been sentenced for this. Oh, wow, wow. So she was out of town. She just heard he, he went away for an offense involving children, so she thought this was what he'd gone away for. Was the, uh, the the young child's family still around? When yeah, you his mom was still around. Wow. Which she had to, I guess, feel okay about she felt, the conclusion. You know, I, I, I'm sure she felt okay. I, you know, it's a terrible situation to be in. We watch the crime shows all the time, and so-and-so disappears. They don't for 20 years. My father died. Didn't know what happened to his dog. She always wanted somebody to be responsible for this. Yeah. Um, so I think she was delighted that somebody was responsible for it. And I have no question that we proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And closure. Yes, for sure. Do you have a lot of cases like that or no, that's, that's pretty a, rare? My chief deputy, who's a wonderful prosecutor, probably the finest trial prosecutor I've ever seen, did a cold case when they had a killing over at the Lee Davis Mechanicsville Park and Ride that went for like 11 years. We've had that one, but cold case, well, one then, not a, thankfully, we don't have many homicides and murders in Hanover County. I think we average like one a year. Yeah. And most of the ones that happen, sadly, are, are domestic. And, you know, it's, again, like we're watching TV, who's the first person they go to? The boyfriend, the husband, <laughs> the wife. Um, because so, no, haven't had many cold cases, thank goodness. Yeah, it's part of the uh, charm of, of Hanover. You, you feel safe here. Yes. And, and you play a large uh, role in that. No, that's the sheriff's department, my assistants. I, I just get some votes every four years. <laughs> so, so when you were defending folks, did you ever have a, a situation where, and I imagine you did, I mean, obviously, you tell me, where you maybe a little bit into the situation felt like, oh, he did it. And now I've got to defend him. Like you felt like, oh, oh I, this might be a yeah, how do you win deal situation. With this? How do you hard, deal with that? This is hard to explain to the lay person. So I'm not trying to talk down to anybody. No worries. I don't think about defense attorneys. Don't think about my client did it. Okay. We think like, do they have enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt to prove he did it? 
it's ingrained to you that everybody's presumed to be innocent. Everybody has to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I mean, we're human. Do I think I've represented people that were guilty? <laughs> yeah. Didn't say they were guilty. Sure, I do. But yeah. you really, you, your assessment is not on the person. It's on the evidence and the facts. Makes sense. And you're not doing your job unless you take that approach. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Uh, give, give us another memorable one. Wow. Another memorable case. Uh, I mean, I figured out at 45 years, you've got at least two. Trip. Last <laughs> memorable case I did was a started as a capital murder case in Richmond County where I was appointed by the court of two people had been killed in what was probably was a drug deal gone bad. Um, kind of interesting to go down there because I, I got no contacts down there. Right. All. I just got called up by the court saying, hey, good news, you're the next guy on the list that's qualified or death certified, as they say, which is a lovely title to have. Mm. Um, <laughs> You've been death certified for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I go down there, I meet my client, uh, I meet the Commonwealth attorney who's a, ended up being a good friend of mine, but he's kind of small, he's wearing a three-piece suit, I go into the district court, he's doing the traffic docket, and he stands up the entire time, and I'm going, and I'm trying, I'm sitting there going, God, these benches are killing me right now, <laughs> maybe that's, but he's got his own chair. <laughs> um, started out... Uh, it's a small town, sheriff, small county sheriff's department, which doesn't mean they're not dedicating good. They're just limited manpower and resources. And as we went through the case, I went to the Commonwealth attorney and I said, you know, he allegedly, two drug one drug dealer got killed, one got shot. Are people in this county really going to care about that enough to give him the death penalty? I said... And if they are, you know the county better than I do, that's fine. But understand, if we try this as a death penalty case, I'm going to have to file like 46 motions. I'm going to have to object constitutionally to everything that goes on. We will spend more time in court doing motions, not for our case, but for any appeals and habeas that occur after this. When if you take death off the table, we can just try it as a, as a murder case. He said, done. Um, developed. He said, uh, there are other co-defendants involved. He said, we'd really like to talk to your client. I said, well, we'll certainly talk to my client, but we're going to have to get something for that. He said, well, why don't we take first-degree murder off the table and make it second-degree because I don't think he shot it. I said, okay. That's a big difference. We'll talk to him. They talked to him, and apparently his story's making sense, and they go back again, they've tried one, now they got to try somebody else, and they say, we would really like to talk to your client again. Can we do that? Well, by this time, they've tried the other cases, they've got major evidentiary problems. Witnesses have disappeared. Uh, people are backing out of their statements, and it ended up after, I think, about 15 months, my client pled guilty to two misdemeanors of <laughs> accessory after the fact because he threw away the handgun in, in the river. This started with the potentially the death penalty. Started with the death penalty and <laughs> two misdemeanors. Well, it was two misdemeanors. And it was probably the right decision right. By, the, by the prosecutor. But, I mean, it's just weird to have something start off that high yeah. and get resolved to something 
appropriately, but that low. It's fairly unusual to go from death penalty to misdemeanor level. Yes, I've never had it happen before. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that had to be one of the death penalty had it happen before. Just stealing a Butterfinger. Yes. yes. All right, uh, this is fairly timely. Uh, you watched the PGA Championship. Yes, I did. Uh, did you watch all four rounds? Watched uh, most of the replay on Thursday and Friday. Didn't see it all on Saturday because I had a celebration of life to go to, but saw some of it on Saturday and watched some of the replay and saw certainly everything from when the leaders teed off on Sunday. I, I watched the first four holes. I couldn't believe the bogey birdie stuff <laughs> that was happening. And then I had to go do some stuff, and so I, I recorded it like I always do, and I was hoping that nobody would, would text me or, or <laughs> I would just – I actually should just put my phone away. And I, and I watched every shot that Mickelson took, and he's a year and a half – younger than me it, it made me ecstatic to watch him win that I, I was delighted he won I think he's been a wonderful representative of the sport I think he's a class act um, I was confident of two things one somebody would shoot around of 66 or 67 and put the pressure on two I thought playing with Kepka would get to him because of the difference in, in distance and age and I guess thirdly, when he hit the shot, the second shot on 13 into the water. Yeah. I said, oh, here we go. Yeah. But then, you know, it, it was, it's a, obviously a brutal course when Ustazen takes a triple bogey. I mean, he would have been right there if it's yep. not for the triple bogey. It's, it's, it was more two shot swings in one hole than I've ever seen before in a major golf tournament. I, I, but I it was remember. just great drama because yeah. I still felt like, Coming to 18, Kepka may make a birdie on this, and Phil may bogey yep. on it, especially when he hit it up into the gunk. And then I think, as this caddy said, you don't need to be a hero right now. Just get it over. But I can see him sculling that baby, trying to hit that flop, sculling it into the water. He's done it before in major champ. He probably should have 10 champion majors by now. Certainly should have won an Open. <laughs> right, Had definitely. it all there for him. Yeah, he was second place six times. Yes, the but the one he hit the driver at Oakmont, I think yeah. it was, and way left it hits three wood hits the fairway cruises in that was tough yeah well would you talk about Kepka out driving him and guys like Bryson DeChambeau uh just murdering the golf ball the way they swing so hard and they're so strong but I think it was whole uh, I was 15 or 16 he had the longest he drive 68 on one hole yeah oh he could it still, was the longest drive of the week he could for still any pass. player yeah, any round. I said that I, that's at 50 that's Unbelievable. I know, and I know the course was hard, and I know it's wind, but you still got to hit it really well to hit it 368. Most people couldn't hit it on 95, 368 right, yards. Right, I agree. Or giant open parking lot somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So you said food. You like you like consuming food. I enjoy consuming food as well. Your favorite meal of all time. Wow, I feel like I'm on death row. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going there. I, I can't imagine you're ever going to end up on death row trip. Not at my age. It wouldn't be worth, it wouldn't be worth the appellate process. we drop it to a misdemeanor if you did. <laughs> right. Thank you. I, push comes to shove, I'm probably going to go to basics. I'm going to get myself a nice, rare steak mm. with a baked potato. I want a salad. 
and because I'm not counting carbs, because this, this is my final meal, I will get some French fries with that. Well, you made it the final meal. I just said favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I, if I eat that meal, it might be my final meal. Yeah. You getting fries and a baked potato? Oh, I'm going all out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, if you want me to vary my diet, I'll get onion rings. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what, what kind of steak? Oh, wow. Porterhouse, big. Uh, you're not messing around. No, I, I, this is it. I'm going all out. Uh, I, I think I'm getting the exact same meal. I, I don't need the fries and the baked potato. But I, oh, you're not Saturday, so you got to be my age. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take a chance but, without coming up again. Foot filet mignon, those would be my yeah, but they're so tiny though. I don't yeah, like, they could. They they would certainly be better if they were bigger. Yes, no I agree. But they are tasty. Good piece of steak for I, sure. I'm I'm bouncing around a lot here, Trip. You mentioned you call my mom Deidre. Yes. What's the story behind that? We were sitting, we'd been, I think we'd been to a bar function, and your mom and dad and my wife, Stephanie, and I went to Andy's, and we were sitting there talking, and I think. Well, how long ago was this? Oh, before your dad became a judge. Okay. All right. Um, 20-some years, maybe. And Larry, for some reason, called me Chip. And Brenda started laughing. Uh, <laughs> so I called him Harry. <laughs> Your mom called my wife, Stephanie, Bethany. I didn't want to do it. Brenda, I thought, was just too mundane for, for your mom. <laughs> I always thought she should be a diva. So I called her Deirdre. Uh, there it is. I did not know that story. I also did not know my parents ever went in the Andes. No idea. Um, well, I probably let Larry astray once again. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been shooting that much pool. Lost if it wasn't for me. That's great. But you were good at pool. I was a pretty good pool player by day, yes. You made a couple bucks, I imagine. Spent a lot of time at Triple Triangle. and so, on Right there on Broad. Yeah, yes. I, I remember Triple Triangle. I think, my, I knew my dad played there, but I think my mom and I would go pick up my grandfather there. Maybe he'd had a couple too many, and we had to go there, and I'm like, there were people who I thought were ancient at the time in Triple Triangle, and, and, but good Lord, they could shoot pool. Played yeah. one pocket, which is probably the toughest pool game. You I was going to ask. What, what is what, what is yeah. one pocket? One pocket, you rack all 15 balls up. You lag to see who can get go down, hit a rail, come back, get closest to yeah. the rail where you started. Whoever wins breaks, and you have to hit a ball – make it or a ball in a rail before you do all this you pick your pocket the person who won the leg is going to pick a pocket so if the rack is away from where you're breaking somebody's going to pick the pocket on the left somebody's going to pick the pocket on the right you have to make your balls all in the one pocket you've picked mm. they have to make it so you break, and it's not like rare back and kill it. It's like how light can you touch the end ball on the opposite from your pocket so your balls roll right. that direction. Right. Good. You watch good one-pocket players play, you may see 15 to 20 shots for anybody ever even tries to make a ball. It's Just all position. positioning balls to – Try it, and you want to put it so that they you stymie somebody so they can't get to a ball in a rail. That'll give you what's ball in hand. Uh, but I mean, it's a tremendous game. It takes a long time to play, um, and so the people that play it 
back there and played for a lot of money because you could I mean you could play I don't know 15 nine ball games while the same playing time. one one wow. hockey game I like that and so are you in your mind like Minnesota Fats and Willie Moscone back in the day I watched they were on TV in the 70s and I remember watching them and the commentators were talking about how they would know their next eight shots they had already mapped it out before they hit the after the break yes they knew what they were going to do you can't do that in one pocket it would no because it's all totally dependent on what you can to this extent if somebody gives you an opening and you can make a ball then you can play all right i've got to have the pool ball come and and break these off so i have another shot or all i can do is one shot make this ball so now i've got to leave this ball on the other side of the table so he has no shot at his pocket right. right What's the best shot you've ever made in, in a pool game? Oh, I I remember playing a triple triangle one time, and I was playing, pretty sure I was playing nine ball, and I had to hit a, a double bank to win. I think I was playing for like 25 bucks at the time, which was all the money in the world. And right. That, that's the one I remember. Yeah. Double bank's a hard shot. Uh, that was my, like my one success. <laughs> Did you put any English on it? No, didn't have to. Okay. Just had enough. Ball wasn't frozen on the rail, so I had enough. I could hit it on the edge and take it to where I wanted. What'd your opponent do when you made that shot? Paid me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you go there and you, and you play people and you're playing, and that twenty five bucks was a decent amount of money in yeah. those days. Uh, you go get beat. I mean, if you play yeah. good pool players, you're going to get beat. Yeah, no, it's, it's competitive. It's meant yeah. to be competitive. No bar yeah. fights in the pool hall back then. Not. Back then, you you know you could go. You could get in a bar fight because of pool. If you'd go to a true bar that had the little seven foot table, okay, which was honestly God like playing on a two foot table. <laughs> if you'd been playing on a nine foot table, uh, and other than you'd find people there because like most bar tables, they weren't well maintained, and they would know if you go to go into the right far pocket, the ball moves left <laughs> right. or breaks left. You could get whacked the first time out until you found out what the How table to play, was like. The yeah. layout, yeah. Yeah, it's, could you make a cue ball do anything you wanted? At one point, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. I, n- I never got to that point. I played yeah, a fair amount. Well, you probably worked too hard at your profession in raising a family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had all the time I wasn't in class to work on that. <laughs> You're obviously an accomplished attorney, Trip. I, like, I, I, I imagine you went to the library and cracked open books more often than you're leaving them. No, I... Truly, I'm not exaggerating. Your father would tell you the same thing. I was kind of infamous for T.C. Williams for not being around a lot. Uh, I, I, I didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was dull. Again, met great people. Uh, but once I got hired as the assistant commonwealth attorney in the city of Richmond, now it's not people you'll never meet in your life. It's not old cases. These are real people that have really been victimized that have lost something then it started to mean something there's there was somebody that mattered to me involved besides me winning there's flesh and blood yeah. involved yeah. um so you've obviously had a college career are you going to keep running until you just can't run one anymore? more time well i don't i can't run anymore right now uh I can barely get up the steps. <laughs> and certainly have a hard time getting down one. I hope right now I plan on running one more time. Yes. So and you're two years away from that? Two years away. Yeah. All right, cool. I uh I, I have a feeling you're gonna win again. Uh, well, 
you know, you're only one bad one, only one bad case away. <laughs> that's a great point. I, I, I've never contemplated that. Like, that's a, it's a very public thing. Right? Yes, it is. Especially yeah. if the media catches a hold of it, and then you don't, right. your office doesn't look so good based on uh, the outcome. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly tough. correct. Yeah, how, how long do Commonwealth attorneys normally last? Depends on your jurisdiction. Uh, a lot depends on uh, your law enforcement agency. I've, I've, you know, with what's gone on in the Commonwealth with the change to liberalism, a whole lot of wonderful prosecutors got beat the last election mm-hmm. cycle because it's, I think they call it progressive justice. Um, what happened in Ray Moreau got beaten Fairfax, one of the finest prosecutors I've ever known. Theo uh, Stainless got beat in Arlington, great prosecutor, all running on people with uh, agendas that I consider to be liberal and not worthy of the um, of the protection of the public. I mean, General Assembly is, you see it in the General Assembly. I mean, you know, we, police can't stop a car because only one of the headlights is out or the one of the taillights is out. That That's ridiculous to me, and that's not we're picking on somebody that's hey you're a threat to every other motorist on the road right uh can't stop you know supposed to get your car inspected every year supposed to have your car tagged every year but now you get a three month three full month grace period before the police can stop you do you really yeah i didn't know that i'm not gonna take advantage of that by the way i just didn't know that i mean i mean but that's like i'm thinking okay here you are with your wife and two children in a car that hadn't been inspected when it was right. supposed to. Right. How, how wise is that to give somebody a grace period? You're trying to buy votes is all that is. That's pandering. Yeah. Wow. That's mm. it. All right, Kevin likes to – well, I, I like it when Kevin asks the last question. We're going to talk about your family a little bit at the end. Um, I don't have any specific questions. Just have you describe your family for us. And then uh, Kevin likes to ask anywhere from a two-parter to a five-parter question at the very end. Or, or do something It's an easy different. question. All right. But you go ahead. No, go ahead. You, you go it. ahead now? Yeah. All right. For you, based on everything we've talked about, what would your dream foursome be on a golf course? And where would you want to play and that he's one. He's one of the four. No, yeah, he's one of the four. Okay, yeah. So, so you, you have three other fo- – dead or alive, could be anyone, male, female, doesn't matter. And where would you play that round? I would love to play, and I've only seen pictures of it, Pine Valley, but it's always ranked the number one course in the world in the United States. Uh, I can't imagine I would have enough golf balls to play it. But I, I you know, I've have played a lot of wonderful courses. I played some, but to play the number one consistently ranked golf course in the country in the world would I, I, I couldn't turn that down. What's the best course you've played? The best course I have played in its day was probably the Blue Monster at Doral. Oh, okay. I played um, over at Casa de Campo, Teeth of the Dog in the Dominican Republic. And wow. that was cool just because it's the Dominican Republic and there's some par threes you got to hit over the ocean wow. in theory. Um, and I actually par- bogeyed one of them, but I birdied the next one. So I finished even par on the two par threes over the ocean. I was pretty pumped about that. And yeah. Then, then I hit the golf ball on the next hole and lost it. <laughs> so I don't have any memory. I have no memory ball to a souvenir of that. My foursome, you know, I would have probably picked people like Arnold Palmer. Um, always fascinated with Billy Casper because he's a big guy and ate buffalo meat. Uh, 
but now that I'm this age, I, I pick my, my buddies I always play with and do that just just to have a, a good time. That's and cool. I, you know, it'd be cool to play with with Palmer if, if he were around. It'd be wonderful to play with Mickelson. But I'm thinking, you know, how much fun am I going to have watching people hit the ball that well? And <laughs> y'all hold up a minute. I, I think I can find this one. <laughs> you need to play with 18 handicapped guys. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why I picked Barkley as one of mine all the time because I know I can beat him. Yeah, you could. Be, and he'd be fun. He would yeah. be fun. You're he'd right. be fun. That's cool. All right, Trip. Tell us about your family. Wife Stephanie, wonderful lady. We met when I went to teach to talk to her elementary school class about being. A lawyer. We have two different stories as to what uh, transpired after that because I'm the guest and she's not. She chased me unmercifully <laughs> and finally wore me down. <laughs> I have a son uh, who's 28 years old. He's a CPA, lives in right up 54 in Providence Subdivision. And he's a wonderful golfer, great young man, but a wonderful golfer. He's like a plus three or four handicap. Oh, wow. Play with him, uh, try to play with him every Sunday. People say, you like playing with your son? I said, you know, I see him on the tee box, and eventually I see him on a green. (laughs) The rest of the time, we're in different area codes. (laughs) He's maybe 100 yards ahead Uh, uh, in the middle of the fairway. If I really hit one, he's 100 (laughs) yards away. (laughs) Very cool. Well, Tripp, I I learned a lot tonight. I really appreciate you joining us, Uh, Kevin. This has been a blast. Thank you all. Thank you, Kevin. We had a great time. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, take care of yourselves. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.